there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, This week's episode is really, 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 really not for um, anyone who's not an adult. It features adults making questionable choices. If you are a young person or if you're with young people, please do not listen to this one. This is just a programming note that at the end of the show, after the credits roll, we are going to have a preview for the brand new Gimlet show. It's called Surprisingly Awesome. It is hosted by Adam Davidson of Planet Money and Adam McKay, the director of Anchorman, among many other fantastic movies. So when the episode ends and you're listening to the credits and you're like, ah, I can just turn this thing off. What's the point of listening to these guys say what Matt Lieber is again? Don't do it because there's a preview for an awesome show. All right. Enjoy the show. From Gimlet, this is Reply All. I'm PJ Vogt. This week, we have a story about changing your mind. And it starts with a 911 call. 911, where is the emergency? Um, something that happened in my dream, and it's actually happening. So this man got too high, and he called 911. And what he's trying to do is convince the operator of something that his family refuses to believe. Okay, what's happening? Everything that happened today is actually in my dream, and I'm gonna, I want to prove to everybody. Okay, okay. So what did you dream about that's happening? Uh, it's all on paper. I wrote it down. Okay. We'll get someone out there to you. Uh, Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. So the cops come, and they just say, please, please stop calling, or we're going to have to arrest you. They don't want to do it. But because his family refuses to admit that they're part of his dream prophecy, he has no choice but to call 911 again. 911, where is your emergency? Well, I called earlier on the Orange City. And what's the emergency? Um, The officer told me not to call back. And he said, if I call back, then y'all are going to take me to court. Uh-huh. So I'm calling back. Because you want to prove something. Because you want to go to jail? I, I had to prove something to my family. So okay, you're at- an officer back. Calls like this happen all the time. I could play you dozens of them off the internet. Calls where someone got too high, freaked out, and called the cops. And as this case shows, that's not always the best idea. Because they're cops, and so they might charge you. Fortunately, though... There's actually another place you can go for help. I recently talked to somebody who volunteers there. His mission in life is to calm down people who have gotten too high. Last night, for example, a guy comes in. uh, He's on uh, dissociative, which are kind of similar to psychedelics. Um, But not. And he's like, uh, I'm just here because I wanted to confirm that uh i'm real and everything is real and i'm like yeah 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 you're real you're still alive everything's okay and that's all he needed he was like thanks guys that helped a lot this conversation happened on a website called tripsit.me 
Trip sitting is like babysitting, but instead of taking care of babies, trip sitters take care of people who've gotten too high on drugs. Say you've eaten a bunch of mushrooms and you feel overwhelmed by paranoia. You're too high to function, but not too high to get on your computer. And so you log on to TripSit, where you're greeted by a front page that offers you resources about drug safety and access to the TripSit chat room. In the chat room, you type into a box and a volunteer TripSitter jumps in to assist you. They'll ask you what drugs you've taken and how much. And if they can establish that you're not in physical danger, then they'll just focus on trying to help you calm down. The person I spoke with is one of these TripSitters, and he agreed to talk to me so long as I didn't use his real name. Um, so how how should we identify you for the purposes of this interview? Uh, I think just go with uh, reality would be good. You know, would be unhelpful if certain people found out that I was involved in this kind of thing. Reality is the name that he uses on Tripset. It's a reference to a David Bowie album that he loves. But in the context of a chat room for the hopelessly stoned, that name, of course, takes on a different meaning. People will come in, they'll be freaking out, and they'll be like, you know, is any of this real? Is like, I'll say something like, I'll say, yeah, you're all right, man. They say, wow, reality just, like, confirmed my existence. <laughs> Whoever I pictured when I imagined a guy who spends his time talking to high people online, it was not this guy. He's calm and thoughtful. He has a real grown-up job doing work that's smart and complicated and honestly kind of boring. But he lives for his volunteer work on Tripset, and he's good at it. If somebody's in real trouble, he'll make sure that they seek actual medical attention, but usually that's not the case. Usually, he just needs to babysit somebody who's gotten in over their head. Reality says that there are go-to strategies that typically work. The, the tripper usually has quite a short attention span, so uh, you just ask them to, you know, go and grab a, a glass of water, or uh, we give them some uh, music suggestion, something like Emancipator or something, you know, nice and calm like that. What's Emancipator? Emancipate is a band who do, like, uh, really cool, like, uh, instrumental music. It's very, like, uh, orchestral kind of thing. My mum says it sounds like uh, elevator music, but, but I strongly disagree. <laughs> There's also this website he'll send people to, which just consists of a 3D rendering of a floating orb suspended in a box of water. You can move the orb. High people find it calming. It models, like, uh, liquid physics in... in in the browser and you can sort of uh, interact with it with your mouse um, it's quite cool things like this you know I mean it's supremely interesting for people <laughs> who are on drugs most of reality's job really just entails knowing a little bit about drug safety and then being extremely present for scared vulnerable strangers the conversations reality ends up having with these strangers are often really intimate once people calm down they just want to talk and during those talks they can realize things about themselves that they never had before. People realize that they've done bad things in their lives to people they loved, that they're alcoholics, that their lives have turned into something that they don't like. Getting reality to tell you his true feelings about drugs is surprisingly sort of like pulling teeth. He's just not a drug evangelist. But he seems to really like talking to people on psychedelics because these kinds of conversations seem to flow from that class of drug. One of the uh, effects of a psychedelic, it's often described as like uh, a sense of childlike wonder. Like uh, you see everything as if you were a baby or you see it with the same interest. I was really surprised when I learned how much time reality spends doing this. Basically almost every waking hour that he's not at work, he's on trip set. He volunteers during his nights and weekends, and when he's not in the chat room helping people, he's doing the back-end development work that keeps Tripset.me running. 
I don't know many people who are this generous, but reality says that he feels like it's a privilege to get to do this work. I started to wonder how listening to all these strange nighttime confessions affected his real life. When you go out in the real world, does it affect how you see just people in the real world? <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm... The two worlds really don't intersect for me much. Uh, I don't feel the same sense of generosity elsewhere in my life, I think. Really? Are there people in your life, in your real life, where you're like, Jesus Christ, if this person would just maybe once try a psychedelic, they would be so much easier to deal with? Yes. Yes. (laughs) With some people, I wonder whether even a psychedelic could help them, you know? <laughs> like, But, yeah, for some people, I think if if only they could sort of... I have conversations with them, and I, and I think if only they could experience this sort of, like, sense of universal empathy for a couple of minutes, then maybe they they would sort of be a lot more open. Most people would benefit from a psychedelic experience. And it's not just... Uh, generosity towards others but also generosity towards yourself at this point i just set aside the rest of my trips at questions and we just started talking about acid a drug that i have always thought of as the epitome of a dumb dangerous drug but which reality was saying no this is actually a really great piece of technology that caught me completely off guard yeah it's funny i've never i've never tried a psychedelic because i've always felt so scared that um I would it would dismantle my brain in a way that I could not reassemble. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of a uh, sort of mythos about it, and like uh, the 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 problem is that in in times gone past, like uh, in the 60s and 70s, I mean, people were taking you know ridiculous amounts of uh, psychedelics, uh, and like with no knowledge about what they did or how to act about them. And now there is a lot of knowledge, so you can approach a psychedelic in a cons- much more constructive way. And you know, you're you're not going to have this experience where you just destroy your mind it's a a valuable experience personally though you know i mean we we don't condone drug use certainly but i mean they're they're my personal feelings not of trips it's obviously huh acid could this possibly be real could acid really turn you into a better person kinder more patient So I started poking around, and it turns out there's a lot of research being done on the therapeutic uses of psychedelics. But that research is mostly limited to people who either have serious addiction problems or who are facing terminal illnesses and need to make peace with their own deaths. What reality was describing felt different. It felt broader. And then I found this guy who's been studying psychedelics since the 1960s, even during the 40-something year period where that research was banned. His name's Jim Fadiman. Good morning. Hi, um, this is PJ calling. Um, yeah. So you sort of know generally what, what we're up to this week? Um, as far as I understand, we're going to talk about um, LSD. When Jim first started researching psychedelics, psychedelic researcher was actually a job you could have. It was a completely legal calling. And Jim performed all sorts of experiments. One of my favorites is a little number he calls psychedelic agents in creative problem-solving experiment. Basically, he took a bunch of geniuses who had been stuck on some creative problem that they'd been wrestling with for months, and he stuck them in a room. We gave them 100 micrograms of LSD or uh, 200 milligrams of mescaline, 
slightly different molecules, same effects, and help them to deeply, deeply relax, and then in the afternoon to work on their problems. And we had 48 problems and 44 solutions. The geniuses had a ton of breakthroughs. They built a new conceptual model of the photon. They found an engineering improvement to the magnetic tape recorder. They designed a new linear electron accelerator beam steering device, whatever that is. That pilot experiment would have been followed by larger ones, but later that year, the government made psychedelics illegal. At the time that pronouncement was made and that 60 different research projects were stopped, LSD was the most researched psychiatric drug in the world. It's probably important to mention that Jim is not just an unbiased researcher here. He went through his own conversion. This was back in 1961. I was a first-year graduate student in psychology, and I was not deeply interested. Um, The alternative career path at that point was being drafted to Vietnam. He was just sort of surviving. And then one day in Paris, he met up with his favorite professor, and that professor got him very high on psychedelics. And Jim began a period of psychedelic experimentation that led to this epiphany that changed his life. When I asked him to describe it to me, he said it felt kind of like dying, but it wasn't. You have expanded outside of the box of your prior conditioning. And it's as if your ego is saying, don't, 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 don't do that. Um, 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 you'll, you'll die. You'll get really sick. You'll feel bad. Because what really happens is on the other side of that experience is you say, oh, my ego is actually not as important as I thought it was. And your ego says, darn, I hoped you wouldn't find that out. And it's a little tricky to tell you in a, in a short span. That's why I had to write a book and why there are a lot of books out there. Um, because it's a little bit as if um, you're saying to me, um, I hear there's some unbelievably wonderful sexual positions. <laughs> but I don't... Uh, but I've never had sex. <laughs> and I'd say, well, it's going to be a little tricky to kind of give you a description that's going to be very helpful. <laughs> oh, man. I feel like such a virgin. Well, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful feeling for a while. Hearing Jim talk about this feeling of getting to abandon himself, I felt jealous. Jim is patient and warm and just a thoroughly lovely man. Whereas me, I worry all the time that I'm too self-absorbed. I'm a misser of birthdays. I'm a non-returner of emails. There's a running joke in my family that people will take long trips to other countries, trips that they tell me about and plan for. And then once they've sailed off to Guatemala or Ireland or whatever, I'll call them and leave a message asking why they aren't picking up their phone. If I could take a magic pill and change one thing about myself, it'd be that, to make sure that I was kinder and more aware of the people around me, less stuck in my own head and in my own worries. That said, acid is scary. I know that there are a lot of people who have done acid and they don't find it scary, but I don't care because there are also people who took acid and got so messed up that they couldn't even hold down their job of playing in Pink Floyd. And Jim says my fear that I could take acid and see something terrifying in my own brain, that's real. It happens. But he doesn't like to call those trips bad. He prefers another word. Challenging. It gets really difficult. He says it's just like mountain climbing. Mountain climbing is really hard. It's really unpleasant and painful or cold, but you know that you're, you have set it up so that can happen, and you're okay with it. I'm not okay with it. I would never climb a mountain. In third grade, somebody told me a story about this guy who took too much acid and convinced himself he was an orange, and then that guy got locked away in an insane asylum because when people went near him, he started screaming because he was convinced that they were going to try to peel him. That's not for me. 
But Jim said there might be a shortcut, something he's developed, a kind of LSD experience that doesn't get you high, but still unlocks those good parts of you. Uh, what's called a microdose. A microdose. Which is below what's called a perceptual threshold, which is people do not have any of the um, visual and uh, sensory you know, excitement that, that psychedelics traditionally you know, are part of. So it, what I would probably say to someone like you, not to you, of course, <laughs> is microdosing is really very safe. You don't have any interesting experiences. Great. And the number of people who have now written me about how it has alleviated depression and anxiety is very real. Of course, the only way to know would be to try it. We'll be back after this word from our sponsors. Welcome back to the show. So, it turns out, if you live in a city or know anybody who's in college, acid is actually pretty easy to find. I met a friend of a friend of a friend outside a coffee shop, and she immediately handed me a pack of gum, which I opened because I thought that she was telling me that I had bad breath. But inside was a small plastic bag with two tiny squares of white paper. No charge. When I got home, I examined what she'd given me more closely. Each hit looked like a little piece of confetti. It was crazy to think that something so small could be so powerful. And it was even crazier to think that, according to Jim at least, there was a way to take this drug and then go to your day job and be normal. Not just normal, better. So, I decided I wanted to microdose on acid for one week of my job. And this is where Reply All producer Fia Benin enters the story. Hey, PJ. Hey, Fia. So I was with you during your interview with Jim Fadiman. Yes. And I, like you, was charmed and fascinated by the idea of microdosing. And so much so that I found myself wishing that I could do it with you. Okay, so listener, here's something you should know about Fia. She's an extremely practical and sensible person. She's not the kind of person you would expect to do LSD, especially at work. But if you were going to do LSD at work, you'd want to do it with someone as conscientious as her. Right at the beginning of this, Fia and I sat down in the studio and we talked about our concerns. I'm a ball of anxiety about this. I've talked to like every single person I know about whether I should do it or not. No, I totally understand. I think we're both people that like to have control over ourselves. And that's a lot of what makes this scary. Yeah. Yeah. We were afraid that we'd hate it. We were afraid that we'd love it. We were afraid we'd have some revelation and then want to abandon our lives. I was also worried about my mom's reaction. I called her, and she gave me a list of her concerns. How does it work? How safe is it? So we called up the person who'd originally given us the acid, and we asked a lot of questions about what might possibly go wrong and other questions like just, like, where's this stuff from? And we also exchanged more emails with Fadiman. And somehow in the end, Fia got the go-ahead from her mom, and we decided we're doing this. So these were the instructions. We needed to take one piece of confetti paper, soak it overnight in a bottle of water, and then drink one-tenth of the bottle, or less, before 10 a.m. Okay, so now what are you doing? I'm preparing a dropper for me. We should take the microdose on day one. Day two, it would still be in our system. Day three would be a recovery day. And day four, we'd take another microdose. Okay. Okay. Now we just see what happens. 
and now we just have a great day. So we did our first dose this bright, beautiful October morning. It was Columbus Day. It was a day off work at the end of a long holiday weekend. And after about 20 minutes, we took a walk down Lincoln Place in Brooklyn. The whole time I was like, wow, it is a really sunny day. Was it this sunny before? Here's what I'll tell you. This is the block that I live on. I've never noticed that tree before, and I really am noticing it right now. It's a beautiful tree. It looks like, like a ginkgo or something. But I definitely wasn't tripping. I just generally felt really happy. The next day, Tuesday, we went into the office, and things felt normal. Like, slightly different, but different for the better. Our senior producer, Tim, said that I seemed like I was in a great mood. I decided that for this whole week, I wasn't going to tell my co-host, Alex, what Fee and I were up to. Alex, more than anybody, gets the brunt of my impatience and jerkiness, and so I wanted to see if he'd notice me behaving differently without being prompted. At one point, I looked over at him, sitting in a hoodie, staring at his laptop, and I had this unusual feeling towards him. I thought, this guy's a great guy, and it's important that I communicate that greatness to him. So I said something like, hey, Alex Goldman, comma, king among men, I have a question for you. King among men. I never call him or anyone that. But it did the job. He perked up, and he said it was the nicest thing I'd ever said to him. A few hours later, Fee and I checked in. There are some work-related phone calls that I need to make that generally make me feel really anxious. And those aren't making me feel anxious right now. I feel, like, able to freak out a little bit less and be a little bit more emotionally open Mm -hmm. and a little bit less, like, snappy. Mm -hmm. I think there's a good chance that if we had full scientific knowledge of the universe we'd be like this isn't really affecting us yet but mm-hmm. the being told that you've taken a powerful drug that's going to make you a little more empathetic and calm has a real measurable placebo effect i think it's totally possible but i am feeling that way then it was wednesday it was my birthday it felt really similar to tuesday except for one thing when anybody would make a self-deprecating joke it deeply disturbed me it was like watching somebody slap themselves in the face really hard which is weird Also, I'd started to make unusually sloppy mistakes, like CCing people who I meant to BCC. And when I talked to my editor, Peter, he said that I'd written something that made, quote, zero sense. That seems like an indication that maybe the LSD was affecting me, but not in a real alarming way. And so the experiment continued. I'm shaking it. That could make a difference. And then Thursday. Thursday is when we stopped wondering if what was happening was a placebo. It became clear that something was operating on us. That morning, we met early at work, took our microdose in the studio, and then our days went in totally different emotional directions. I felt great. Ideas were coming to me in droves. The sun somehow seemed even brighter than before. At one point, I noticed my boss, Matt Lieber, was sort of looking at me funny. He asked me if something was going on, so I pulled him aside for a quick interview. So, Matt Lieber, uh, we're doing an experiment where I've been taking small amounts of LSD before work, and sometimes at work. Don't tell me. I don't want to know this. What? Why are you talking? Why are you telling me that? Like, what do you want? You nothing. I don't want anything from you. I'm sorry that you feel that way. Well, I'll tell you what. I actually have thought you've been kind of distanced. This you've been a little um, distanced this week. Really. Yeah, you just, like, I came to talk to you yesterday and wish you happy birthday. And you talked to me for, like, a minute, and then you turned back to your screen and kept working. And normally I would have talked to, like, longer. Yeah. But I figured you were just busy or something. 
This was a mild thing for Matt to say, but I cannot tell you how deeply it affected me. To me, it felt like he was crying out with some deep psychic pain. And as our conversation progressed, I got goopier and more earnest in this way that looking back is frankly really embarrassing. Maybe it's making you um, like less political. Like I don't less, talk to you for political reasons. Maybe it's like I don't feel I need to. Like you're like living your own self. You don't need to like kowtow to your to the president of the company you work for. But I don't want to. I don't want to kowtow. I want to talk to the people I work I'm with. Of course, that's how I feel about you. That's why I came to talk to you. I'm just kidding. I don't believe that. I'm sorry that I didn't make more time for you. So while you were obsessing over Matt Lieber, I was feeling worse and worse. I hated keeping this secret from Alex. I felt really guilty. We had an editorial meeting, and PJ, you sounded so hyper to me that I just wanted to burst into a giggle. It felt horrible. She was like, there's no way somebody's going to spend $5,000 And one guy was like, my rate's $240 an hour. Another guy was like, I would charge him $500 an hour. And they were like, yeah. So at the end of Friday, we checked in in the studio, and I was completely blindsided when Fia told me how bad she was feeling. How come you feel sad? Um... Like, it's hard for me to sort out. I feel like doing it on the weekend with you felt fine and fun and good. And bringing it into the workplace felt like... I think it felt, like, bad to feel like I was, like, trying to hide something from everybody around me. Yeah. Like, that's the difference between Monday when we were just, like, having a nice day together. And, like, I told my community and everybody was, like, checking on me and um, being supportive. And instead this was, like, trying to have, like, a little secret inside myself. Yeah. In retrospect, this seems obvious. But if you're going to take a drug because of the promise that it'll connect you to everybody and everything— you probably shouldn't build a wall of secrecy right through the middle of your experiment. I'm sure that's not how Jim would have done it. Do you feel like we have had hubris? Yes. I do. (laughs) I do. I feel like I at least had a point where I was like, PJ, just do it. It'll be fun. And I think that that's like an irresponsible approach to a really um, strong drug yeah 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 you're gonna stop definitely okay Fia was out but I wanted to keep going I couldn't really tell what the ass was doing but I definitely felt good so Saturday I get up I have breakfast with my roommate Drew I take my dose which he thinks is ridiculous and then we get in the car and he drives us up to Rhode Island let's get started drive safe we're going to stay on this for 100 miles. Okay. Uh, can, can we just get, like, a little bit of air? Oh, yeah. Uh, do you want AC or window? Uh, so, I'm in the car. Drew's talking about a Drew thing. It's a nice day. I'm looking forward to lunch. There's lots of cars on the road. Roads. I started thinking about Roads. People design these things, and it's such a boring job, but also it's so important. Like, people are constantly dying in car accidents, and it's your job to minimize these deaths, but, like, you can never win. And then I noticed my breathing. I'd inhale. I'd exhale. 
And I felt like if I could just do this, just breathe, I'd be fine. This was my one job in life. Just keep breathing. It's not to worry about a work deadline or a breakup or my overdue parking tickets. I told Drew all of this. I explained to him that traffic was deadly and that breathing was important. And soon after that, I started shivering and shaking very hard. We stopped at a rest stop and I called Fia and left her a voicemail. Hey, Fia, it's DJ. Uh, Something just happened and... um Uh, yeah, like my brain feels like it's on LSD. <laughs> Fia later pointed out to me that I was not supposed to dose on Saturday. It was supposed to be a rest day. Plus, I had somehow taken my dose and Fia's dose. I told Drew I wanted him to keep driving, so he did. We crossed a very ordinary bridge, and I felt like I was passing through this grand doorway, leaving one world and going into another. The trees look beautiful. This is, like, not a hallucination, but they look like they're on fire. Yeah. Another reason, possibly, that I'd wanted to keep microdosing is that I'd just come off a rough week. I'd broken up with somebody I loved, and it hurt. It felt like I was just one step ahead of this herd of stampeding feelings that I really, really did not want to catch me. And the microdose had seemed like maybe it would help me outrun those feelings. But then my brain did something weird. We were stuck in traffic on I-95, and I saw all the cars— I thought about how many people there were in the world, and I felt tiny, like just a speck. And I realized that if I was so tiny, and the world was so vast, then the part of me that was hurting, that was even tinier. Even if that hurt felt very large to me, it was nothing. I tried to say this to Drew. The thing that I feel that I have not felt before right now is like the world feels really, really, really big. And actually really connected. And it feels good to know that I am small. Drew is a kind and generous friend. And so he did not outright say what I know he was thinking, which is that these were boring drug cliches. But the inside of a drug cliche, and I realize this now, it feels like a simple, pure, uncomplicated revelation. And that was a very useful place to get to visit. Uh, I also think that this is the end of microdosing for me, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) So that was it. I was glad that I'd gotten a tiny peek at this thing that Jim had told me about, the reassuring feeling that the world was big and connected and that we were tiny parts in it. But this felt like the end. I wasn't really sure what I'd learned. You know, nobody I talked to had said I had been more empathetic. They just said I'd made less eye contact and seemed a little manic and weird. But on the other hand, the next week, a lot of things that Jim had said might happen did. I started exercising a lot more for the first time in months and eating healthier. I was drinking water. I felt this halo effect, even though I couldn't say for sure that it had come from LSD. It didn't feel possible to see outside myself well enough to really say what had happened. But it felt like it might be helpful to check in with the person who most has to deal with me, Alex Goldman, who I still had not told anything about what had happened. So we sat down in the studio the following Tuesday. Uh, did last week feel okay to you? What do you mean? Like, did I, I feel like I was being weird. Was I being weird? Like all week? Yeah. I don't know. Not that I can think of. Why? Well, uh, I was taking acid at work every day. 
What? Yeah. Every day? Well, I was doing this thing called microdosing, so I was taking a small amount throughout the week. Uh, can I tell you another piece of information? Sure. There was another person who was microdosing at work. She's in the room right now. Fia Benin. Hi, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you guys do it at work? That's the worst place to do anything fun. I guess now that you pointed out, that's totally true. That is insane. No, that was the that was the way it was sold. It was like this is not this isn't something fun. What we were told is like LSD is quite similar to serotonin. That it's not totally dissimilar to taking an SSRI. That you would just feel like you had a good day. Maybe you'd be a little sharper. Maybe you'd get a little more work done. Maybe you'd drink a few fewer diet cokes. You're just a little sharper. Which wasn't what happened. No. I think that you are being sold a bill of goods by a cuckoo berry. Really? Yeah. I don't think that that is – I don't – I get it. I get that there are people who are like, I'm going to take this drug because it it offers me epiphanies or it offers me some kind of equilibrium in the same way that there are people who self-medicate with marijuana. I wish I'd had some warning. Why? What do you mean? Because I'm blanking on anything that happened last week. Um, the thing I remember that I was wondering if you remembered, there was some point where we were on Slack and I was like trying to get your attention and I called you, I think a king among men. Oh yeah, that was weird. Tell me why that was weird. Because you never say anything nice to me. I actually said, commented to you. I think that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. Yeah. Did that feel good? Being called a king among men? Of course. If I called you that, wouldn't you feel good? Yeah. So do you think you want to continue that tradition? Of calling being calling you a king among men or taking LSD before work? Mm, I was thinking more along the lines of just being nice. Oh. <laughs> right, the third option. <laughs> and also, you did say over and over again at your birthday party, like, I can't believe you came out to Brooklyn. Like, it's really, I'm so happy that you're here. Yes, I did. I felt an immense sense of gratitude. It really isn't that hard for me to get there. <laughs> You know, I'm here every day for work, right? <laughs> but you came out at night. Did it feel weird to you? To be here at night? No, that I was like thanking you like as if. The first time it didn't. As the night went on and you did it like three or four times, I was like, this is a little weird. The next day you did it too. You were like, it was so amazing. I can't believe you came out. <laughs> but I like I could still access that feeling. Like I did. I felt just uh, loved. Huh. I got to say, I wish you'd just. Do a real, like a real full non-micro dose. Why? Because once you know you're in it, like once you know you're in it and like it's like, okay, I got to buckle in for the next half a day, it's like you can really make an adventure out of it. Like I think of acid trips that I've been on as adventures. Like there are, there are trips that I've been on where insane things have happened. Like what? I feel like... They seem (laughs) – all right. (laughs) Okay. What happened? I went and saw 2001 once on acid. And I went to see it. I don't know if you – I expected that the Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite, the end of the movie with all the trippy colors and stuff, I figured that was the moment I was waiting for. Yeah. What I didn't realize is that there's about 45 minutes of that movie where there's just no dialogue, basically, just space breathing. You know, like (sighs) – Uh huh. And I realized 
halfway through, I was like, oh my God, I think I'm pretty confident that if this guy stops breathing, I'm going to stop breathing too. I really hope this goes on for a while. But you weren't scared? No. I was like, this is exciting. Like, what's going to happen? I've seen this movie, but I don't remember when the breathing stopped. (laughs) And then after the movie, I was sitting with my friend Alan, and we were talking about the philosophical ramifications of 2001. And this drunk, (laughs) this like drunk, like... I don't know how to, like a drunk homeless guy, basically. Okay. Wandered by. And he was like, 2001? We were like, yep. He was like, you want to know what 2001 is about? And we were like, yeah, yeah, we're all ears, man. And he was like, it's about whether man and machine can replace woman and child. <laughs> That's really insightful. (laughs) Yeah. That's really insightful. And we were like, you know what? Can't argue with that. (laughs) (laughs) Profile is me, PJ Vogt, and Alex Goldman. We were produced this week by Tim Howard, Shruti Pinamanani, Fia Benin, and Catherine Wells. Our editor is Peter Clowney. Production assistance from Khalila Holt. We were mixed by Rick Kwan. Our theme music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and our ad music is by Build Buildings. Matt Lieber is a piper at the Gates of Dawn. You can find more episodes of our show at iTunes.com slash replyall. Our website is replyall.soy. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>